Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community practicing the way of Jesus and thirsting for the life He gives. Hey, before I start, I just want to take a minute and congratulate the men and women's basketball teams at UVM for winning their conference championships this weekend. Those guys aren't here. We have some guys from the men's team that come to church here, and so we got to be praying for them because they're going to find out tonight who they play, get on a plane, and go play in the big, big tournament. So be praying for those guys. Um, I had missed the last two Sundays. I was out of town for 10 days. We had a, a three-day volleyball tournament for my daughter, Sophie, in Boston. And it was this massive tournament. There were 92 volleyball nets in one location, and this giant building uh, with about 400 volleyball teams and um, it was really loud lots of whistles and people and and it was two and a half days of that and then we got on a plane in Logan and went to Florida where we soaked up some vitamin D and visited with family for a week it was wonderful and then I planned to be back here for coffee Sunday because I'm smart <laughs> that's when you come back from vacation on a coffee Sunday so I'm, I'm happy to be back for that um, when we started our sermon series on the life of David eight weeks ago, I provided everybody with a, a brief description of some of the things that we were going to cover. And specifically, I mentioned how there were parts of David's story that we were going to look at that are messy and downright ugly. And today, the passage we're going to read throws us right into the thick of that ugly. And so I'm preparing you for what we're going to read. I will say this. I, for one, am grateful that the scriptures don't just record people's success stories. They don't just record people's achievements. When we read about David's life, we find that the scripture does record his, his heroic stories, his, his accomplishments, his successes, but it also records his failures. It also records... Um, moments like we're going to read today where he actually turns and walks away from God. And I'm glad those stories are in scripture because I find them incredibly helpful for me, for me as an individual and for me as a pastor, because there are times in our lives when we find ourselves in that same place, right? Where we, we, we walk away from God. We turn away from his way because we think our way might be a little bit better than his way. And what stories like this do, the reason we need these kinds of stories, the, like the one we're going to read today, is it helps us to learn how to return to God when we've walked away from him. And we need stories like that. And, and scripture uses the term repentance to describe this process of returning to, to the Lord, returning back to the Lord. That once we walk away from God and turn away from God, repentance is what the scripture uses, the word scripture uses for us to turn away from our sin, right, and to turn back to God. As was mentioned earlier today, uh, Jordan said we're in the season of Lent. And Lent is the 40 weekdays leading up to Easter. And it's the time when we, we become ultra-focused on repentance. And so the, the, from now until Easter, we're going to be hearing a lot about repentance and looking at David's life and seeing different stories and parts of his life when he had to repent. And today is one of those days. And so we're going to read part of David's story today that gives us an inside look at that. But first, we need to, to, to look at all the ugly parts that lead up to his repentance. And, and I understand this, that, that it can be stretching for some of us to imagine someone like David walking away from God. 
right? We, we read of David's heroic acts and how he trusted God, and we read about his divinely inspired creativity. We know that David wrote many of the Psalms in the Old Testament. We know that the prophet Samuel said this about David, that he was a man after God's own heart. We, we know that David was in the lineage of Jesus Christ, and, and Jesus himself was referred to by many, many people throughout Jewish history as the son of David, right? And so it's a stretch for us sometimes to imagine someone like David, like we look at David, he's, he's way up here. And to imagine someone like David who walking away from God can be a stretching for us. Yet, here's the fact of the matter, David was flawed like you and I. And the story we're going to read today is the tough read. It is sinister, it is dark, and it is David, right? But I also believe that it's in Scripture. It's recorded there for us for a reason, and that reason is this, to show you and I how to find our way back to God through repentance and confession when we've walked away from him. And that's an important, important truth that we all need to learn, right? So our story today is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and I'm going to read verse 1 to start us off here. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonites' army and laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. And so we're given a clue right away about David's disposition because he's not willing himself to risk himself getting injured or killed. And so he stays behind and he sends his generals and his soldiers to fight without him. Now, this was not something kings back in this day did. It's common now, right? Like our president doesn't go (laughs) fight wars. He sends people. But back then, this was not something kings did. Kings were always uh, out front, right? They would never put themselves above the people they lead. But David, for some reason, decides not to go, and he sends his generals and soldiers. And before the story even begins that we're going to read, we see something here. It's a clue of of his sense of entitlement and abuse of authority that is kind of humming in the background of his heart because he's doing something that kings aren't supposed to do, right? He's, he's, he's putting himself above the people that he's leading. He's putting them in harm's way at their expense so that he doesn't have to. And maybe David justified this behavior. Maybe he justified it by rehearsing all the difficulties, all the challenges he'd faced up to this point. Remember, David had been... 15 years waiting to become king. He had been on the, on the run from King Saul, who was trying to kill him for, for years and years and years. And now he's finally king. He's finally in a position of power and authority. Maybe he, he justified this action away. Maybe he convinced himself, you know what? I've earned this. I've paid my dues. Right? I, I, 15 years on the run, like, I, I, can, I can do this. I've earned it. And, and it's this sense of entitled disposition that sets David up for a series of really bad choices where he gets further and further and further away from God. So here's what happens. His, his generals and his armies are off fighting a war. He stays back. One day while he's staying back after taking a nap, David is on the palace roof 
walking around, and he sees a woman bathing. And her name's Bathsheba. And she's married to Uriah, who is one of David's best soldiers. And he's away on the battlefield while David is at home. And so David sends for Bathsheba and gets her pregnant. And I have to make, make a point here. There's no wooing involved, okay? Uh, the Hebrew word for sends for or is to summon. And so this was a very clear abuse of power that David was doing here when he sent for her. And, and while it doesn't directly say that it wasn't consensual, we know from the context and we know from the culture that it's highly unlikely that this was consensual. Right, so this is an ugly, ugly story. And this is how far David had walked away from God, right, where he's justifying this behavior. So David not only abuses his power by, by putting himself above his army, by putting them in harm's way instead of himself, he does something magnitudes worse to Bathsheba. And then he tries to cover it up. He, he covers it up by asking Uriah, Bathsheba's husband to leave the battlefield and come home because David wants him to go home so, you know, he can cover his tracks. Because if, if, if Uriah's home with Bathsheba, then the pregnancy can be explained. But here's the thing. Uriah refuses to go home. He comes to the palace and he meets with David and David says, you, you should just take a break. Just go home, be with your wife, settle down, take a breather. And, and Uriah refuses to go home. Instead, he sleeps at the palace gate that night. And he says this to David. He says, how can I go home when all my friends are, are living in tents on the battlefield? And so you see the integrity, the loyalty, the honor of Uriah. It's on full display here. These are all things that David should have exemplified. And so what David thinks of next is, you know, maybe if I get Uriah drunk, I can convince him to go home. And so he does. He gets Uriah drunk, and he still can't convince him to go home. He sleeps outside the gate of the palace. And so what David does is he arranges to have Uriah killed. See how it's just, it's just like, it's snowballing here. And here's what he does. He tells his general Joab, hey, put Uriah at the front of the line at the battle tomorrow, and have the men next to him withdraw. And so now, David has hooked in his general Joab and all these soldiers who are going to withdraw. Now they're implicit in this sinister scheme, in, in this massive cover-up. And they're dragged into it. And to David, this is all just collateral damage. And so sure enough, Uriah gets killed. And after David hears the news that Uriah has been killed, he says this in verse 25. He says this, 2 Samuel 11, verse 25. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. You can see the callousness in his words here. He, he's walked so far away from God that he's like, well, well, you know what? This giant cover-up, and he, he, he keeps playing the game. Verse 26 says this, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And when the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased 
with what David had done. And what we see here is that this progression is David has walked away so far from God that he can't even see his own sin. He's completely blind to it. So much so that God has to send the prophet Nathan to help David see his wrong. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1, we read this. So the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to tell David this story. And here's the story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb. It grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. Verse 5, David was furious. See, David thinks that Nathan's reporting an actual story that happened in his kingdom, and he's coming to David for judgment, for justice. And, and David says this, he's furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one that he stole and for having no pity. Verse 7, then Nathan said to David, you are that man. You know, it, it's been said that we often judge people by their worst moments and ourselves by our best intentions. Right? And that's what David's doing here. David is, is judging himself by his best intentions, but the moment he hears this story, he gets furious and he, he pronounces a quick judgment but he's unable to see that the person that Nathan's talking about is him. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever had someone help you see something you were blind to? I had this happen to me this last weekend when I was on vacation. I'll tell you a story. So as I said, we were at this volleyball tournament for three days in Boston. It was not a good way to start a vacation. It was for my daughter. She had a blast. She played in the tournament three days of volleyball. Who, who wouldn't love that? But for parents, it wasn't fun. <laughs> and for my son, Josh, it wasn't fun. We're in this massive room. Again, 92 volleyball courts, 400 teams. It's whistles and yelling and shouting and observers and spectators and people cheering and people disappointed. And it was chaos. <laughs> so we did two and a half days of that. And then we had to board a flight and miss my daughter's last game so I had my son, who lives and works in Boston, pick her up and fly on a different flight than us, but we had to get to the airport. We raced there, got our flight, got to Florida, right? You know the travel thing, you gotta rent your car, you gotta get your, your place. So my, my daughter and son finally arrived a couple hours after us. We were two and a half hours late getting our baggage because it's travel, right? And, and, and we pick them up. And so the whole day spent, we crash that night. We wake up the next day. Now vacation starts. We're sitting by the pool, 85 degrees. Just beautiful. And my son, Joshua, had a runny nose. And my other older son, Jared, who lives in Boston and flew with us to go on vacation with us, he said to me, Dad, we should probably get Josh. Josh tested for COVID. He's got a little a sniffle. And I said, Jared, he doesn't have COVID. He, he's got like quadruple vaccine. He's had COVID twice. He just had it a few months ago. There's no, there's no way he has COVID. He's like, yeah, but we're traveling. We really should. 
you know, get, get him tested. And, and I was pretty dismissive and pretty def- defensive and pretty short with him. <laughs> I said, no, like, that, that's stupid. We're not going to, look, we're outside at a pool. Even if he has it, nobody's going to get it. Dad, we really, we really need to. No, we don't. <laughs> and he goes, then, you know, he just, he just persisted really graciously. And I, and I said, fine, I'm, I grabbed the keys and I kind of stormed off to the drugstore, right, to buy the COVID test. And the whole time I'm driving there and getting, I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. Like, my vacation, I'm five minutes in my vacation. I know, he does, but, but, but okay, whatever. And I grab the test. We come home. We test. We come to back to the, the pool, test him. He's fine. And then my son, Jared, graciously, after there was decompression, <laughs> came up to me and said, Dad, I want to talk to you about our conversation. I'm like, okay. He said, you were defensive. You were dismissive. You were abrupt. You were really short with me. And you stormed off. And, and I hadn't taken the time to see it. I just felt it and, and lived it, right? But when he, when he showed it to me, I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. Like, I'm sorry for that. I shouldn't have done that. See, here's the thing. Sometimes God uses other people to show us blind spots that we can't see ourselves. Have you ever noticed that? Here at somebody... <laughs> whether it was graciously or annoyingly, <laughs> come up to you to help you see a blind spot, maybe something you didn't see, right? Maybe it was a sin that you needed to repent of and you just didn't see it and somebody just kind of points it out to you. If you haven't had that happen, you need to find some people in your life to make that happen. <laughs> it's, it's not always pleasant, but it's good. You know what I mean by that? And, and, what we find in this story is David is in that place where he's so blind to his sin. He doesn't see any of it, all of the hurt and chaos and damage he's done. He doesn't see it. And the prophet Nathan, God sends the prophet Nathan to tell him this story. And all of a sudden he sees it, but not towards him, but towards this person in the story. And then Nathan says, oh, you're the person in the story. And he's like, oh, oh man. And he finally sees it. And once David sees how far away from God he's gotten, he begins to repent. He begins to turn away from his sin and turn towards God. And and that's what repentance is. It's simply turning away from our sin and turning towards God. And so we're told that David enters this time of fasting. He goes days without food. He's laying face first, prostrate on the ground, just like praying to God, crying out to God. And we actually have a part of his prayer recorded for us in the book of Psalms. In Psalm chapter 51 This is a prayer that David prayed after Nathan confronted him. And so I'm going to invite Amanda Smith to come up. She's going to read part of this psalm for us so we can get an inside glimpse of what David's repentance looks like. It's Psalm chapter 51. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. 
Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and don't take the Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels, and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. So I mentioned earlier that Lent is a season on the church calendar where we ultra-focus and hone in on repentance. Now, although we do that for a season on the church calendar, repentance is, is ideally something that we're practicing regularly throughout our lives, right? But the early church fathers created the season of Lent because they knew that repentance isn't something that comes natural to us. It's not something that comes easy to us. We're good at justifying. We're good at arguing our point. We're good at proving our case, right? Not seeing our, our sin and our wrong. And, and repentance is absolutely essential to following Jesus. And so there, there have been different church traditions over the years that, that practice repentance, specifically corporate repentance and confession in different ways. I grew up Roman Catholic. I was an altar boy. And, and if, if you've ever been Roman Catholic or part of a Roman Catholic church, they usually have these confessional booths at the back of the church, right? And so every week when I went to Mass, um, I would go to confession. And in these booths, you have a priest, and then there'd be another booths, booth where you went in and you confessed your sins to God and to the priest, and the priest would pray for you. And, and, and that's, that's the way that they practice corporate confession. Um, sadly, most denominational Non-denominational traditions, like ours, Church of the Wells is a non-denominational church. We don't belong to a denomination. Um, and most non-denominational traditions, like ours, don't do a great job of making space in our worship gatherings for confession, for repentance. And, and I'm convinced that's one of the reasons that there's so much stuff that happens in churches, <laughs> non-denominational churches. I believe it's one of the reasons why Christians often act like jerks. Right? Because when, when, when you take away confession and repentance from a rhythm of your life and from your worship gatherings, what happens is it becomes more easy to justify your sin and be blind to it. Right? One of the things repentance and confession does is it, is it creates a rhythm in your life of like, oh, I need to investigate what's going on in my heart and where I've walked away from God, where I'm getting callous, where I'm not obeying him, where I'm not listening to him. And once we get in that rhythm, we begin to walk in that rhythm. And, and, and it's an important part of following Jesus. You may have noticed uh, that about a year ago, we started incorporating a public prayer confession every time we take communion together. So we do communion once a month at Church of the Well. It's always on the last Sunday of the month. So we just did it a couple of weeks ago. I wasn't here for it. I missed it. But I know that it happened because it happens on the last Sunday of the month. And we started incorporating a public prayer of confession where we, we pray it aloud. We put the words up on the screen and we pray it aloud before we come to the Lord's table, before we take the bread and the cup. And the reason we started doing that is because we uh, want to develop a rhythm 
of confession and repentance. See, one of, one of the joys of being a Christian is that Jesus actually invites us to explore our wrongness, to look at our sin, to come to terms, to repent. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Adam, how is that a joy? <laughs> how is it a joy to look at your wrongness and, and to confess and to repent? And here's why it's a joy. Because it heals our relationship with God. And Jesus made it available to us through the cross, right? Which is, which is why we pray that prayer when we come to the table. Because at the communion table where we have the bread and the cup, it represents the, the, the body and blood of Jesus and what he did for us, right? How he reconciled us to God. How he went to the cross on our behalf and took, took, took our sin. And so we pray that prayer of confession before we come to the table because the two are interlinked. And I know that um, we're not having communion today, but I thought that we could pray this prayer together anyway in light of the passage we just covered. I thought that we could close our time by praying this prayer of confession. And again, our hope for this is once a month when we do this, when we come to the communion table, we pray this prayer, that it's not just something we do once a month in our lives, but it's, it's a rhythm that started to remind us, oh, I need to live in repentance and confession every day and be listening to God's voice in the Spirit and be listening to how God might even use other people in my life to speak to those blind spots, that sin that I, I need to repent of. Because I, I'm convinced of this, that as, as followers of Jesus, once we start to walk in a rhythm of confession and repentance, not only is our relationship with God healed and whole, but when we start to walk in that, we, 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 we start to easily recognize those blind spots. There's a humility that comes in our lives, right, which we all need. And so I'm going to invite you to stand and the worship team to come up, um, and we're going to pray this prayer of confession together. Before we sing our, our closing song, and I believe we have this up on the screen too. Great. Let's pray this together. Heavenly Father, we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. Forgive us for what we have done and for what we have not done. For we have said, and what we have not said. We confess that we are more ready to take than to share, more ready to compete than to forgive, more ready to fear than to serve. We do not love one another as we should, nor do we love you as we might. Cleanse us of our sin, that we may delight in your ways and walk in the light of your presence. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our righteousness. Amen. You're listening to the official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at www.wellchurchvt.com.